morning, everyone. Who's been to Shamanah? Okay, awesome. Most people. Shamanah's awesome. Yeah, you're never too old to go there. I remember uh, was it two years ago, I took our students to uh, Winter Wipeout. Climbing that ice wall was one of the most terrifying moments of my life, but it was... Uh, It was awesome, but it's good to be with you. Um, If I haven't met you, my name is Matt. I serve as the church planting uh, resident here. Let me invite you to grab a Bible and open up to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, I believe it's page uh, 888, if I'm not incorrect here. We'll be looking at an interesting conversation Jesus has this morning, but let me pray for us, and then we will uh, jump right into things here. So, Father... As we proclaim this morning, we are dependent on you. We have no good apart from you. We need your spirit to be present among us. We need the righteousness that only Jesus can bring. And so, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would teach us, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, that you would cause us to be dependent, that you would cause us to open our hands and say, Lord, we need you. Lord, would you lead us in this time? Would you glorify yourself and have your way? We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, well, I want to tell you about a uh, turbulent season in my life. Who, who doesn't miss high school? Anyone? Well, one of the most turbulent seasons in my life was back during my high school years. And, and high school for anybody is kind of uniquely challenging, right? It's a formative season. You're trying to figure out who you are. You kind of start getting this like rebellious edge to you. And so oftentimes you're, you're clashing with your parents. But I remember I was in kind of a unique situation. I had started uh, in a program uh, that was called the IB program. It, it stands for International Baccalaureate Program. And if you don't know what that is, it's kind of like a glorified AP kind of thing where like all your classes are an AP program. And so that meant that I didn't get to go to kind of the default community high school where I lived, but they kind of bust us out to a different area. And, and thankfully, a, a number of friends that I had grown up with in middle school decided they were going to join that program as well. And so they came along with us. So even though the school was difficult, uh, the, the actual uh, relationships and the camaraderie was there. But I remember that there was a, a moment during my, my sophomore year well, this is going to sound a little off the cuff, but, but some of my friends uh, started to develop what, what I would call um, anti-Semitic tendencies. And so I don't know where it actually started. I don't know if they had heard this from someone and they decided they were just going to run with it or they had saw me react to it and they, they thought it was funny. But, but I had friends that would like go around saluting Hitler because they thought it was the funny thing to do. I had friends that would talk about Mein Kampf. If you don't know what Mein Kampf is, it's like the manifesto of Nazism. And for me, being an unbelieving Jewish boy at the time, that was significantly offensive. Obviously, that made a a large amount of conflict. And within a short time, I remember my parents had gotten involved and things became really toxic really fast to the point where after my sophomore year, I decided it was time to change schools. And so I went off my junior year uh, to a, a private school. And this private school was oriented towards athletes. And so growing up, I was a gymnast, and so I fit in well within kind of the athletic spectrum there, but I was the only gymnast out of all of the athletes that were there. So it was a better situation, but there was still a sense in which I was on the outside looking in. Now, things got better once I got to college, but, but all that being said, that was a season where I got a taste 
of what it felt like to be the outsider. So I want to start off this morning with a question for you. Who are the people in your life who are the outsiders? Who are the people that you would categorize on on being on the outside looking in? Maybe you have a family member, right, that just doesn't quite seem to jive with the rest of the group. Everybody's got a weird uncle, right? So maybe it's that weird uncle for you. Maybe you have a coworker who's part of your team, but they just don't quite seem to connect with the culture. Uh, I know that in Minneapolis, we have a number of homeless people. And, and so I of, oftentimes I'll get off my exit going to our house and there'll be someone homeless on the corner. Oftentimes it's easy for me to see them as the outsider. Maybe you know someone with a, a criminal record or a history of drug addiction or something of the sorts. And you're like, I, I just don't know if I'm willing to get close enough to them. Maybe you have friends or acquaintances who are on uh, the different spectrum religiously. They have different beliefs than you do or politically. They, they vote different than you do, and it's hard for you to find common ground with them. Maybe you're here this morning, and, and you have felt like the outsider in your life. The reality is, is we all have people who don't seem to fit the mold of expectations. So I want to take this seriously, and I, I, I want to just, to just think for a minute. Who are the outsiders in your life? We've been cruising here through John's gospel, and we've seen Jesus kind of kick off his earthly ministry. He, he first called some disciples. We saw his encounter with Nathaniel, where he demonstrated some supernatural knowledge. And then Kyle had walked us through the wedding at Cana, where he turned water to wine. And then Andrew had walked us through this Passover scenario, where Jesus goes and he cleanses the temple. And then most recently, we had this conversation between a religious leader named Nicodemus, a, a Pharisee, and Jesus, and, and they're sorting through kind of the nature of who God is and what he's doing in this world and this concept of what it means to be born again. And today is going to be no different. We're going to see Jesus encounter another unique scenario. He's going to meet a very interesting person, someone that I would consider and he would consider to be an outsider, according to the world. He meets this woman who is from an unwelcomed people group and who is suffering from severe and deep relational brokenness. And in that, Jesus realizes that she is in deep need of him. And they're going to end up in this conversation, and he's going to tell her some pretty awesome news for what it means for her to worship the Lord. But he's also going to teach us something as we look at it as well. He's going to reveal to us that while there may be outsiders in our world, there are no outsiders in God's kingdom. So let's jump right in here to the text. We're going to look first at verses uh, 1 through 6. Let me read these. We're going to kind of do this in chunks here. So let's look at verses 1 through 6. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So this is a section of the text that I call setting the scene because John kind of sets us up for the conversation that is to come. So Jesus had been in the region of Judea, that is in the southern part of the promised land. 
And he was there, do you guys remember for, for what festival? What was he celebrating? He was celebrating Passover. And Passover uh, is one of the three, uh, you might call them pilgrim feasts, in Israel's annual calendar, which meant that every Jewish male had to appear before the Lord at the temple to offer sacrifice. And so Jesus, being the good Jew that he is, he, he goes there, he, he worships the Lord. And, and then what he decides, he's going to take his disciples and they are going to go off and they're going to baptize some people, kind of in continuity, if you remember, with John the Baptist. The text is really clear, though. It's interesting that only his disciples are the ones who are baptizing. But as they're baptizing there's this kind of thing in the air where Jesus realizes, oh, the Pharisees see that I'm baptizing more than John. I'm calling attention to myself. And he seems to sense that there's going to be some conflict that might come up if he doesn't do something about it. And so what does he do? He goes up north to Galilee. Now he was born in Bethlehem, but he did a lot of his life and ministry up in the northern region of Galilee. Let me show you this on a map so you kind of understand what's going on. So here is a map of the promised land. You'll see on the bottom is Judea, in the middle is Samaria, and the top region is Galilee. Now, if you're going to go to Galilee from Judea, there were two routes that Jewish people would usually take. They would either go east to the Jordan River and go up that side and then cut into Galilee, or some of them were brave and they would take a trip through Samaria in order to get up to that region. Now you might look at this and say, well, it's obvious the shorter route is to go just straight through Samaria. So it's visually obvious, but here's the thing. It's not culturally obvious for Jesus to do that because there are deep, deep tensions between those in Israel and the people living in Samaria. This goes back to hundreds of years before Jesus, all the way to, the, to the, at least the 8th century uh, BC, where what happened was Israel was one nation, they go eventually into civil war, and they broke into two. And the northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern was called Judah. That northern kingdom, its capital was called Samaria. Now, in 722 BC, a nation called Assyria comes on the scene, and they wipe that northern kingdom off the map. They take the majority of those people away into exile. And I want to read to you what happens after they do that. I'm going to turn to 2 Kings chapter 17. Just listen for what happens. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you've carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God, the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he sent lions among them. And behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach the law of the God to the land. So one of the priests whom they'd carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. I'm gonna to jump to verse 33. Here's the conclusion. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So do you understand what's going on here? 
So Assyria wipes this northern nation off the map, and they take a bunch of foreign people, and they resettle them in Israel's land, in that northern kingdom. And those people begin to intermarry with the remaining Israelites that are there. Now, that ethnic intermarrying is not inherently bad, but here was the problem, that in the ancient world, ethnicity and religious expression were almost always tied together, which meant that as soon as those intermarriages began to happen, there was religious compromise in Israel. And this created tensions between those in Judah and these multi-ethnic peoples called the Samaritans in the north. Now, this tension continues. It goes on and on and on until the Samaritans actually establish their own place of worship in a place called Mount Gerizim, which will come up as we continue here in the text. But there was also biblical compromise. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible, which meant that they had a category for the Messiah, but it was kind of truncated. They viewed him as being someone along the lines of Moses. And as time goes on, in between the times the the, the New and the Old Testaments were written, things don't get any better at all. There's a guy named John Hyrcanus. He's a, a Jewish priest king. He came and he conquered Samaria, and he destroyed their temple at Mount Gerizim. Now, how do you think that made them feel? Not great. Right? This escalated the conflict pretty, pretty significantly. Eventually, when Rome comes in, in, in about uh, 60 BC, a little bit before that, he liberated the Samaritans. And so in Jesus' day, you have these two ethnic groups that are warring. And so I want you to understand that there is a deep historical, cultural, and ethnic issue if Jesus is to try and pass through Samaria. And yet what the text tells us is that for some reason, he feels compelled to do it. He feels like if he is going to be obedient to the father, that this is the step that he needs to take. The the text actually says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, why do I tell you this? Because as we go into this text and as we go into this conversation, I want you not only to think about that tension, but I want you to feel the tension between these groups that are warring against one another. I want you to think when you see that Jesus had to go through Samaria, I want you to think, oh man, what's going to happen? This is gonna be, this is a big red flag in the text. Okay, and there's some other categories I want us to observe real quick in the text. We've been introduced to Jacob, Jacob being the namesake of Israel, the patriarch, and his well. Now I bring those up because they are going to play a key part in Jesus' conversation with the woman in just two seconds here. So we got our heads around this. We got the Jews, we got the Samaritans, they don't like one another, and Jesus is going to meet this woman at a well, and they're going to talk about Jacob. That's what I want you to grapple onto. So let's actually read this conversation that they had, verse seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such, such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus encounters this woman right here on the map. So you see that little red dot that's right at the foot of Mount Gerizim near a town called Shechem or, or modern day uh, Askar. And what's going on is he meets her at this well. And, and I want you to understand, like they're standing there and they can see Mount Gerizim. Like they can literally see the cause of the conflict between their people and they engage in, in what I call kind of this words on worship. And so Jesus asks her for a drink. And this kind of launches a dialogue that goes something like this, right? Are, are you better than Jacob? And are you better than the water that he gives? Is the water that you're going to give better than the stuff that Jacob gives, right? She says to him, our forefather Jacob gave us this. He drank from it. His family drank from it. And through it, he provided for us. What do you offer me? And Jesus responds and says, here's what I bring to the table. My water, it's living, which is kind of a double entendre. It's, that's an idiom for like flowing water, right? Like a spring. He says, my water is living. And if you drink my water, then you will never, ever thirst again. You will be completely satisfied. Now, if you hear Jesus talking about living water and never thirsting again, and you're like, what are you talking about? You're in good company because that's exactly how the Samaritan woman responds, right? She says, where do you get this water? What, what, what are you talking about with this? But John reveals to us a couple chapters later what that living water actually is. Turn with me to John chapter seven. We're just gonna look at three verses. John chapter seven. Jesus is in Judea again for, for the, the festival of tabernacles. And here's what it says, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of what? Living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those, he believe, who those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we learn, go ahead back to John 4, that the living water is what? The Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the spirit in his people. But she hasn't picked that up yet, right? She's still trying to figure out what river he's getting this water from. And yet she's still intrigued. Right? She's like, give me it. Like, I, I, I don't want to be thirsty. 
And then she says something that's very revealing. She says, I don't wanna be thirsty and I don't want to come out to this well anymore. And the question that we should all ask is why? Why don't you want to come here anymore? Now we've had some, some clues here earlier in John chapter four, right? Where it says that Jesus is out there at noon. Now there's some evidence that women would go out there at noon, but that's a pretty inopportune time. It's really hot during that time. And she's out there alone, which means she's probably outcasted from the rest of the women because women didn't go out to the wells alone for fear of being assaulted. Okay, so she's by herself. There's something unique about her. And what Jesus does is he essentially reads her mail, right? And he says, call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. Some people actually think that she's making a pass at Jesus. And he says, you're right. You've had five of them. And the one that you're living with isn't your husband. So he reveals that her relationship status is severely compromised. And she's taken aback. She's like, how, how could you know that? I, I perceive, as she says, that, that you're a prophet, which is very significant because Samaritans didn't believe there were gonna be any more prophets until the Messiah came. They thought that Moses was the last prophet. So it seems to be that she's picking up that this might be a pretty significant figure. And so she questions him further by asking about the most controversial thing. Should they worship in Mount Gerizim or should they worship at Jerusalem? And here's what he says. He says, you Samaritans just don't understand He says, you have this truncated, cut-off view of the scriptures. You're missing a big chunk of what God desires to do, and it is from my people that salvation is going to come. That's his way of saying that the Messiah is going to come from the Jewish community. Now, let's step back from a moment from the conversation and realize Jesus is crossing some pretty significant cultural boundaries here. He's talking to a Samaritan, yes, He's also talking to a woman. In conservative Jewish culture, you you don't talk to a woman alone unless they're part of your family. You'll even see the disciples are gonna come up here shortly and they're gonna wonder why he was talking to her. But now we see that she is dealing with relational sin that would not only exclude her from the Jewish community, but would exclude her from her own community. And she is facing a real dilemma because if Jesus is right and the place of worship is in Jerusalem, she's not welcome there. And that means that she's not only cut off from her own people, she's cut off from worship of the true God. And yet what does Jesus say? He says, God is now doing something new. He says that that debate, that war, that conflict, that no longer needs to exist, that barrier is being brought down. Because with my coming, And with the Holy Spirit's outpouring, that worship of the true God is no longer bound to a location. In other words, what Jesus tells her, it's not about where, but it is about how and who we are worshiping. He says that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So God is spirit and we are to meet him with our spirits, which are not location-based. No matter where we are, our spirits are with us. We can be anywhere. We don't need to be in Jerusalem. We don't need to be in Samaria. We don't need to be in New York. We don't need to be in Minnesota where we can come before God and yet we must worship him in truth, meaning according to how he has revealed himself through his word. And what good news is that for the woman? 
who could not show up in Jerusalem and be accepted, that she is not now cut off from God. Let me ask you this. What do you think stands between you and God today? What excludes you from boldly approaching him, from feeling like you have been made righteous before him? Now, there's probably some good Christians in the room that say, you know, I have victory in Christ. Nothing stands between me and God. I don't think we always feel that though. I think deep down inside, some of us experience and and have experienced things that sometimes make us feel unlovable, that make us feel ashamed. I think some of us carry guilt. I know I, I myself carry guilt over things that we've done or haven't done to us. Some of us have trusted Jesus and we just feel like we are stumbling over the same sins, the same foolish behaviors over and over and over. And we say, if I could only deal with this, then my relationship with God would be better. Some of us have unspoken sin that we just have not confessed and it is actually hindering us in our walk with the Lord. Maybe you faced relational barriers that, that there's other Christians or, or you've been hurt by the church and you feel like you're, you're afraid to come to God because of what they have done to you. Maybe you have questions that people haven't been able to answer and you're cautious to give your life to Jesus because you don't have the answers to those questions. But what I wanna emphasize is exactly what the text says, that God is seeking. He is seeking. He wants us. And it is backwards for us to think, I need to have these things taken care of before I come to God because the heart of the gospel is that those things have been taken care of in Jesus, right? And I don't wanna negate the fact that there are real obstacles and there are real challenges in our life, but they need not, according to this text, keep us from God's love. And it is God's work in the midst of our brokenness that is actually the only thing that can cure that brokenness, I think of, of Mark chapter two, where Jesus says that, that I haven't come for the righteous, but sinners. It's those that are sick that actually need the healer. It's not those who are well. And the reality is all of us are suffering symptoms of this sickness called sin. And so I wanna just acknowledge that if you feel like there's speed bumps in your walk with the Lord, that you feel like there's things that might hinder you in coming to him, Jesus says, that because of what has happened through him and by the the outpouring of his spirit, that that need not be the case and those speed bumps do not need to become roadblocks. Let's keep going through the text. Let's finish it up. So we looked at the heart of the text here. Now we're gonna look at verses 27 to 42. This is going to be kind of the result of his conversation with the woman. I call this the harvest has begun. So verse 27, just then his disciples came back They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into a town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food? is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. 
Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. They said to him, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So this is right at the climax of the story where Jesus reveals himself to the woman as the Messiah. It's significant that, that Jesus of all the people that he could tell that he's the Messiah. He's usually pretty secretive about it because he doesn't want people to misunderstand, but he tells this broken, outcasted woman that I, I am him. Actually, if you read it in the Greek, there's, there's, John makes kind of an, uh, an exclamation point at Jesus' divinity where it more literally says, I am the one who's speaking to you. It's echoing Exodus where, Jesus, where God says to Moses, I am who I am. But, but he, he tells us when all of a sudden the disciples show up and she's running off screaming, like, check this guy out. Like, can you imagine that moment? Like they got a bunch of food. They're coming from the town and there's this woman like walking by, like yelling about like, that must be such a confusing moment. And they're confused, right? They're like, why, why was Jesus talking to her? What, what is happening here? And so they're like, all right, wh- whatever, Jesus, we, we got you food. And he uses that as a teaching moment. He likes to use these double meanings in John's gospel. He uses it as a teaching moment to say, yes, that food is valuable, but there is something more valuable than that. It is the mission and word of God. Let me show you a couple of texts in the Hebrew Bible that, that make the case uh, of God's word and mission being associated with food. The first one here is from Psalm 19. I'll let you read that. Uh, that is uh, regarding uh, the fear of the Lord, right? And, and just this dynamic that, that God's word and what he has revealed is sweeter than the honeycomb. The other one is Deuteronomy 8. Let's see if I can make this work. Uh, oh, maybe my... Text stuff isn't work. The other one is Deuteronomy uh, 8.3. And this is actually a text that Jesus uh, quotes uh, in his duking it out with Satan in the wilderness, where he says, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so he says that more important to him than eating the food that I'm sure he wants to eat is that he has come to participate and to bring to fulfillment the mission of God. And then he invites them into it. He says, the harvest is ripe, look up. And for them, just imagine the scene. This woman had just taken off into her town and she's telling a bunch of them that she's met the Messiah. So as they are looking up, they are quite literally seeing a bunch of Samaritans coming towards them. And Jesus tells them that there is this abundance for mission, that they are, or they are joining in a kingdom work that was begun even before them, and they have the privilege of participating in it. And then very quickly at the end, we snap back to what happens with the Samaritan woman. We find out that she was actually a touch point that many other Samaritans were coming to faith. And then it goes further to say that they not only believed because of her, but because they encountered 
God incarnate. They, enc- they encountered Jesus himself. Now, one of the things that Jesus says in the Gospels, he says, pray to the Lord of, harv- pray to the, Lord of the harvest that, that, that he may send out workers into his harvest. You see, in Jesus' mind, the problem is not that there's not enough people to reach. In Jesus' mind, the issue is that there, there needs to be more of us that are willing to go reach those in need. So let me ask you, who might you serve as a touchpoint of faith to? Is there somebody that you might be a stepping stone or a means to someone coming to know Jesus? Because yes, us following Jesus is a very personal thing, but that's not all it is. We experience him, and then we participate in others coming to know them. Like, like the woman Jesus talks to today, we get the joy of pointing people to him so that they might encounter his love and his grace. And what's amazing about that is it is not dependent on us, like the song that we sang earlier, right? We are dependent on him. Think about this woman. What did she have to offer to the situation? Pretty much nothing, right? Her own people didn't like her, and yet the Lord used her in order to bring people to the Messiah. So we pray and watch what God does. We proclaim, we, we, we initiate conversations around Jesus and just see how people respond and trust that he will do his work just like he did among these Samaritans. Because the reality is, is Jesus in and of himself is sufficient. He is intriguing enough that once people start down that road of exploring him, Oftentimes, there's no going back, right? He is significant here. But this is an amazing moment of reconciliation for these people. Remember that conflict between the Jews and Samaritans? What's the text say happens? That Jesus and his Jewish crew are hanging for the next two days with the Samaritans, and they recognize in this amazing moment that he is not just the Jewish Messiah, but he is the Savior of the world, and there's this foretaste of what we see in the book of Acts. Some of you recognize the, uh, what Jesus says in the book of Acts where he tells his disciples, go to where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? To, to the rest of the nations. Well, we've seen Jesus going to Jerusalem, Judea when he talked to Nicodemus. Now we're seeing him go to Samaria. And very soon here, we're gonna see him go to a Gentile. We're gonna see him go to the nations, You see, Jesus actually lives out the pattern first that we are called to step into, where the mission of God starts with Israel, with the Jewish community, and then works outward to every single person. And I want you to hear this, that you are part of that every person. You might be here and feel like you're one of the disciples. You might feel like you're a regular part of the crew. You know what's going on. You're kind of on the inside, part, part of the clique or whatever you want to call it. Or you might be here and you might feel like the Samaritan. You might feel like you're on the outside looking in. You might feel like you've been set aside for whatever reason because of conflict, because you just don't fit in relationally. Maybe you feel like you're, you're too old to connect or too young to connect, but regardless of what you feel like, here's what the truth is, guys. The truth is that there's no one that God is not after, and there is no one that Jesus would not take the cross for. The reality is that the only thing that keeps us from finding true acceptance with God is us. The scriptures paint a very clear picture that the problem is not out there. Right? The problem is in here. It is internal. Now, we experience the overflow of other people's brokenness at times, certainly. 
but it's not an external thing. It is a very intimate internal thing. And we come to find that we're broken and that we're less than we could be and that we rebel against God. And the result of that rebellion is that we've, we've alienated ourselves from him. And because God is holy and he is just and he is good and he will make everything right, which is good news, that's also bad news for us who have transgressed his law. And so he will give us exactly what we deserve, death. So here's the thing. Regardless of if you feel like you're an outsider or not today, the reality of the scriptures is that apart from Jesus, we are all outsiders to God. And yet the Bible tells us that God is full of mercy and that he doesn't want anyone to perish. We, I think we see that tenderness very clearly as Jesus approaches this woman today at the well. And the, the reality is that God would rather take the hit for you than see you plunged into the consequences of your own actions. And that is exactly what the gospel tells us that he does, that God takes on flesh in Jesus, that he lives a perfectly righteous life in our place, and he dies for us. And when he dies on the cross, we read in his word that he took upon himself the penalty of death that we deserved, and he gave us the righteous life that we didn't deserve. And three days later, he rose from death and he validated himself and his claims, but he also affirmed to us that death could not hold him, that in him and only him is found life. And so you are invited this morning, as always, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundred thousandth time, you're invited to turn from your sin and to turn to him, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, to trust and follow him. And what does he tell the woman? He says he wants to offer us living water, the Holy Spirit, who comes into us and assures us that no matter where we're at, no matter how much we're stumbling along, no matter how inadequate we feel, no matter how much we strive and feel like we will never measure up, we have unrestricted access to God who loves us and cares deeply for us. You see, God not only desires those who the world wants, but even those that the world does not. And I want us to, as we take communion in just a few minutes here, I want us to actively think on that. I want us to actively observe the sheer variety of people who are coming to the Lord's table. People with different backgrounds, with different roles in society, with different baggage, with different circumstances. But what binds everybody in that line together is we are all completely and utterly dependent upon Jesus. And none of us on our own stands righteous before God. And yet, for those of us who turn, maybe for you it's the first time today, for those who turn in repentance and faith, we're given a new status and a new identity. God declares us holy and then begins making us holy by his spirit. And we move from exiles to God's household. We move from filthy to righteous. We move from rebels to, to partakers of grace, as the scriptures would say. So I want us to meditate on this as we come before the table today and, and remember that as we look at Jesus' conversation with this woman, we're reminded that there are no outsiders in God's kingdom. There's only his children. So let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning and we confess the truth that we do not measure up Oftentimes, we don't even measure up to the expectations of our culture, let alone to the righteousness that you 
demand. And Lord, we come to you this morning and we, we beg for your forgiveness for the ways that we've sinned against you, for the ways that we have sinned against others. And yet we rejoice in the fact that we stand righteous if we have trusted in the Messiah. We're so grateful, Lord, that you have sent your son and with your son, through faith in him, you've given us your spirit that we can have unrestricted access, that we can come boldly before your throne by spirit and truth and know that you hear us and that you care for us and that you're at work even when we don't see it and that even when it appears that we have been excluded from the world, we have been brought near to you by the blood of your son. And so Lord, I pray that as we worship this morning, as we finish here, that we would go out and that we would be bold in being touch points of faith for your kingdom. I pray that as we take communion this morning, that we would meditate on the fact that it took you sending your son, sending this amazing sacrifice for us, that, that, that we would be righteous, that we all stand on level ground at the cross, that we all come here and that there is no one cast aside for those who have trusted in the Lord. There is no condemnation. And so Lord, remind us of this truth Glorify yourself in and through us. Empower us by your spirit to be bold and to proclaim your name among all those in our sphere of influence. Draw them to yourself, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.